Hi, and welcome to Captivated Audience, the podcast where we look at various topics on financial crime prevention. This time, I have the pleasure of being joined by Mark Gilmartin, who is an expert consultant for EFI Limited. Welcome, Mark. Tell us a little bit about your personal background and your past work in the area of tax transparency. Thank you, Sam. Um, some of our listeners may know me from my work at the British Bankers Association, which is now called UK Finance, where I was chair of their US tax issues, now Automatic Exchange of Information, known as AEOI, committees for many years while I was working for Barclays. Our committee successfully influenced the development of FATCA and the Intergovernmental Agreement approach following the introduction of FATCA. FATCA was announced in the 2010 US Hire Act, the Hiring Incentives to Restore Employment Act. And for example, one of the key influencing wins that we had relates to the original due diligence threshold. For high value accounts, originally this was $500,000 and the $1 million threshold was only introduced because we successfully argued that the US Patriot Act had this $1 million threshold the lower threshold would have treated tax evaders more harshly than terrorists. We also persuaded the US to place reliance on existing AML and KYC frameworks for due diligence purposes. This was important for verifying the report status of US customers and ensuring there was no reason to doubt the information that financial institutions already held. We also helped HMRC write the first published guidance in this area in the hope that many other governments would adopt the same standards. I'm pleased to say many did. Mark, that sounds like a huge amount of work, but I also understand you had some involvement at the European level as well? Yes, um, I was appointed to the EU Commission's expert group on the taxation of savings, and subsequently that morphed into the AEOI expert group, which Interestingly, the the Europeans tend to refer to as AEFI, as they find the others very difficult to say. I've also been an active participant in the Business and Industry Advisory Committee, known as BIAC, at the OECD, as they introduced the Common Reporting Standard. Again, our role was to help shape the guidance and produce frequently asked questions lists that the OECD published. Generally, the theme for all of these efforts has been to ensure that we have a single common reporting standard and not multiple variants by territory, a theme of harmonization that the ABF is now calling out and I think you've mentioned in previous podcasts. Tax evasion, for those of us who work in financial crime, really came to the forefront of our attention in 2016 following the Panama Papers story, which came out late in the spring of that year. That was then followed by a series of proposed amendments to the 4AMLD, which became known as the 5AMLD, designed to incorporate, amongst other things, the addition of references to fighting tax evasion. What was happening in the world of tax at this time in terms of regulation? I mean, we'd had FATCA for a few years before that. Did the Panama Papers help to motivate any changes at the global level in terms of tax? Well, on our side of the fence and the tax world, We had always regarded tax evasion as a financial crime like other types of financial crime. This is why when FATCA was introduced, there was some confusion over where this responsibility would sit. 
Some organisations placed responsibility for compliance within financial crime or within operations or even compliance functions rather than relying on a tax function. However, if anything, the Panama Papers provided the justification for FATCA and a huge boost to the CRS programme as more countries decided that they needed also to sign up to this global initiative. It brought a spotlight on the scale of tax evasion that was going on and it demonstrated that the tax gap, so-called, that had been between the tax collected and the taxes that were due was actually real. Many tax authorities, including HMRC, had long maintained that this gap existed and had tried to estimate it, but until now there was no evidence of this scale. In the early days of FATCA, when we only had draft legislation and no guidance or clarity to interpret the legislation, we developed our own doublespeak around this, and this would be described as a, a known unknown. I, we know there's a problem, but we don't know how to deal with it or how to resolve it. The Panama Papers exposed the structures and the complex ownership chains that were used to create these tax evasion opportunities, while they also concealed the true nature of the transactions and the structures from the tax authorities in multiple jurisdictions. Typically, each jurisdiction would only see a small part of the transaction within their jurisdiction. So hence, there was a real need for tax authorities to share information and to cooperate on a global basis. We've covered a whole bunch of ideas so far in the first five to six minutes of our podcast. So let's just take a step back um, and elaborate on some of the concepts that we've covered so far. And one of them is the OECD. So can you just refresh people's minds here? What is the role of the OECD and how does it relate to the fight against tax evasion? The OECD's mission statement is better policies, better lives. And its role has really grown since it was reformed in 1961. It is an, an intergovernmental organization with a global mission. And it basically, at that time, was administering the Marshall Plan post-World War II to oversee the rebuilding of Europe. These days, it has around 37 countries as members, but it has about 160 countries who are observers and generally sign up and adopt the, their ideas of the OECD within their own national systems. So is the OECD like the EU? Does it enact directives and binding regulation? No, unfortunately not. Um, as it's an intergovernmental organization, it can only produce guidance and policies for governments to then adopt. It has no powers to mandate their adoption. For policies like the CRS, countries must actually sign up to say that they will adopt it. And what the OECD has done is create a multilateral competent authority agreement that allows for that. That prevents the need for every signatory country to complete individual agreements as we have with USIGAs and then with every other signatory country then having to reach out and do each agreement with every other country. That would probably have taken years had we not adopted that approach. The other aspect here is that the OECD doesn't have any powers to ensure that the policies are adopted consistently between nations. So as a result, although the CRS is designed as one standard, there are permitted alternatives within the, the standard itself, usually where governments are unable to agree on a single solution or a requirement. 
and there is nothing to stop countries going further than the CRS requires of its signatories. This lack of harmonisation, again, is what the European Banking Federation is calling out. It leads to complexity, differences in national guidance or interpretation, and it creates opportunities for tax evasion. Okay, well, can you, can you give me an actual example of how that happens? As an example, the, the CRS requires additional information on a category of owners of companies. Essentially, those are the people who are considered to be the beneficial ownerships, the beneficial owners. The definition of these beneficial owner can vary between territories. And so is the answer here, to do what's necessary under CRS, they're relying on owners as identified under AML? That's, that's correct. So they're using the FATF standard to identify the beneficial owners who they then re must report on under the CRS. Some countries apply a higher standard of 10% ownership, and that requires increased reporting. And then you've got countries that do not adhere to FATF requirements, so they may not require any reporting whatsoever. Even financial institutions in FATF countries may choose to apply a higher standard based on the AML KYC policies of their institution. And it's because of that differentiation which sometimes happens between jurisdictions that we sometimes have a lack of harmonization that impacts both tax and AML for KYC purposes. That's correct. You may find that for example, under FAC, uh, the, the Americans had set the limit at 10%, so they expect companies to report on 10%. But because they allow for local AML standards to be used, sometimes the reporting is at, is at the 25% level instead. So ah. fewer people are reported. I understand. So that also then is impacted by companies who are listed on stock exchange, where they're KYC requirements or CDD requirements for listed companies will sometimes drop from 25 to a 10% requirement, which further complicates things. That's correct, yes. So on our latest podcast, Jane and I talked about passive NFEs and the tax KYC that's undertaken for them and whether there are any practical aspects that align or line up with the AML KYC requirements as far as legal entities are concerned. Can you provide us with any practical examples, Mark, to illustrate that? The, the classification of entities is probably the most complex element of FATCA in particular, and anyone who's seen a, a W8BEN e-form will, will understand that. And it also affects the CRS, as this determines what is reported. Is, is it just the company's own tax residence information that is reported, or is it also the tax residence information relating to the beneficial owners and these controlling persons? I think you previously covered the definitions of active and passive NFEs, non-financial entities, but it's probably worth revisiting them. I like to think of them in fairly simple examples of an active NFE, as it for example, is a company that makes things to sell or it sells services, such as builders, manufacturers, dentists, lawyers, etc. They would generally be producing some form of product and selling that in their trade. Okay, so that's an active NFE. How does a passive NFE differ? Is it just as simply as straightforward as it doesn't actually do anything? Well, they would probably object to your description of them like that. But passive NFEs, on the other hand, are generally companies that are looking for investment opportunities to provide them with income. 
So they may invest even in active NFEs, businesses like builders, but they're not involved in the underlying business. They just receive income from the investment by means of either dividends or interest. This is termed as passive income, and companies that receive more than half of their income in this way are deemed as passive NFEs. This could also cover things like rents received. For example, if I was renting out a field or holding onto a piece of land for its capital appreciation and eventually selling it, that would also be considered passive income, just as holding government bonds or company instruments would also be passive. Okay, I'm following you so far. What does this mean then from an AML perspective? Well, clearly, from a, a, an AML KYC perspective, there are some differences. For example, if I was looking at a manufacturer of rifles and guns, I would expect them to be an active NFE, a manufacturing company. However, my AML KYC colleagues would have a very different opinion on the risk profile of that company. So there are differences, but we're probably more closely aligned when it comes to considering the passive NFEs as generally these are the types of entities that could be or historically have been involved in tax evasion schemes and it, who could also pose AML or KYC concerns. It's these passive NFEs that governments are desperate to get more information about. They're often described as what we call money box companies. So they're holding money or assets offshore it's never repatriated, but instead it is kept offshore and spent offshore and it's never declared for tax purposes. Often this can be seen in the Panama Papers, for example, involving a trust structure with trustees or a series of corporate shareholdings, which is simply designed to hide the, the identity of the, the settlers, the beneficial owners and the controlling persons and indeed the beneficiaries themselves. And that was part one of our podcast with Mark for EFI Limited. Stay tuned for part two, where we'll be talking more about tax typologies, tactics, and whether we can actually see some harmonization between the KYC requirements across both tax and AML regulation. If you'd like to know more about EFI, feel free to check out their website at efilimited.com, or you can reach out to them directly on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great day and stay safe.